Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. You can call him at home. Welcome to Torts Illustrated, episode 10. I'm your host, Marie. Wait, disclaimer time. I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. This show is for fun, and we here on Torts Illustrated do not dispense legal advice. If you want legal advice, hire a lawyer. If you've done something bad enough, the government might even give you one. Okay, now welcome to Torts Illustrated, where we discuss all things weird and wacky in the law from old England to today. Episode 10, y'all, very exciting. So exciting that I managed to be several days late with uploading it, so sorry about that. It's been a bit of a crazy week here uh, that was compounded by my computer just absolutely crashing yesterday. Um, Luckily, thanks to a lovely technician at Lenovo and some figuring of my own, we're back up and running. I can say from this, make sure all your files are backed up because... Boy, was it nice to get this whole thing, you know, rebooted and realize that I could just reinstall Dropbox and all my files were there. I'm not sponsored by Dropbox, but, you know, cloud storage. It's helpful. Uh, Also an interesting coincidence that my computer crashes on the Scientology episode. Maybe they're out there hacking me. I don't know. You can weigh in. Spoiler alert, they're not. I have 50 listeners. So I don't think even Scientology is concerned with me. But the good news is... Today is the final installment of our trio of wackadoodle episodes, and today I've got a beer in hand instead of my usual tea because we are talking about the most wacka of all doodles, the Church of Scientology. I can't imagine that there are any listeners who have genuinely not heard of the Church of Scientology, so I'll keep the background info brief. If you're that one listener who actually hasn't heard of these people, pause here and go look them up. And I definitely envy you all the crazy Googling you're about to do. Okay, are you back? Good. As you just learned from Wikipedia, the Church of Scientology is a multinational network and hierarchy of numerous ostensibly independent but interconnected corporate entities devoted to the practice and dissemination of Scientology. It was founded by science fiction writer L. Ron Hubbard in the 1950s in the Holy Land of Camden, New Jersey. Now, the beliefs of the church focus on self-help and mental techniques at the lower levels, but it's their higher-level beliefs that get pretty off the wall. So Scientologists believe that they are immortal beings called Thetans, who were banished to Earth after a space war as punishment by the galactic dictator Xenu. They don't believe in medicine, especially psychology, and they use methods like auditing, where a member is forced to confess to whatever they may have done that might be bad in a current life or a past one, until a weird sort of meter thing reads as clear. Well, it is really hard to explain Scientology in just a few minutes. This stuff is super off the wall. Now, as I mentioned in the previous episode, Scientology has been a particularly hot-button topic in the past few years, based on some pretty negative media attention starting with that infamous Scientology video in which Tom Cruise spouts crazy about pretty much every topic under the sun, including saying that if he drives by a car accident, he knows as a Scientologist that he's the only person who can truly help the victims of car accidents. That's right, not first responders, not doctors, Scientologists. And books and TV shows like Going Clear and Leah Romini's Troublemaker expose the abuses that have been happening in the church, and the horrors that people experience when they're trying to leave the church. 
Jenna Miskevich-Hill, the niece of the current leader of the church, David Miskevich, wrote a memoir about growing up in the church that I just finished reading, and it is truly horrifying. She was separated from her parents for most of her childhood. She was raised on this ranch with other children where they did mostly hard labor, had no education, and were responsible for basically supervising each other, things that no kid should ever have to do. Highly recommend reading any and all of these books, as they really give you an insight into the horrific things that people can do to each other when given some sort of justification. And they're going to give you a lot more background information on what we're talking about today. So if you haven't dove into this pond of all these you know, exposing Scientology books, I definitely recommend it. It will take you down a weird wormhole and suddenly you'll find that you've read all of them. But before this wave of memoirs and outings, Scientology was well known in the legal world too, and for good reason. These guys have gotten themselves into a lot of trouble through particularly a few policies that they have. The first is their refusal to seek modern medical treatment. And this, along with other practices, has led to members committing suicide for lack of mental health treatment, to abuse their children by denying them needed medical care. It's just, it's a horrible policy. In 1995, a member named Lisa McPherson was in a car accident in Clearwater, where the church is headquartered now. Now, she seemed to be physically fine, but she was showing signs of mental instability. Like, right after the crash, she got out of her car and and took all of her clothes off and was wandering around. And she refused to stay for a psychological observation. So instead of getting medical help, she was picked up by Scientologists at the hospital and was taken to a Scientology retreat, where she was locked in a room for 17 days and given Scientology treatments, which is not any medical treatment at all, until she died. She was malnourished, and they found that she was denied food. She was covered in insect bites. Uh, She was showing signs of dehydration. And interestingly, while the coroner's report initially listed the cause of death as negligent homicide, which seems rational here, it was changed to an accident and the criminal charges were dropped, which many people see as a part of Scientology's widespread influence in the area and potential dirty dealings with the police department. Another member, Ellie Perkins, was stabbed to death by her schizophrenic son after following church teachings and denying him treatment for his mental illness. The other policy that often gets Scientology in legal trouble is their absolute willingness to use any method, legal or not, to punish detractors and defectors. In the 70s, Scientology members were involved in something called Operation Snow White, which is another thing I recommend looking up because it's very involved and we can't cover it all here today, but it is bonkers. And it was the largest theft of government documents in U.S. history. And in the end, many members of the Church of Scientology, including a lot of higher ups, were convicted based on uh, this operation. They also repeatedly targeted a journalist named Pauline Cooper for her anti-Scientology reporting with never-ending stalking, harassment, and legal cases. For example, there were multiple incidents where they planned to call in bomb threats under her name, and some of which they actually did, and she was briefly arrested for them. All of this is a part of a policy they call fair game, which essentially states that anyone who's a threat to the church can and should be punished and harassed by any means possible. Although the church claims in courts now that it's retracted this policy, this was, at least at one point, and probably still is, an actual written policy of the church. And that leads us to this case that we're going to talk about today, the final nut in our mixed nuts trio, Allard v. Church of Scientology. This case takes place in the 70s, when L. Ron Hubbard was still alive and running his church. 
cases like Lisa McPherson, uh, the civil case for her wrongful death or the criminal case against the church for her death or Operation Snow White might be a bit more well known. But I think this one is interesting because it shows exactly what we were discussing last week, which is that groups like Westboro Baptist and Scientology use the courts and the legal system to their advantage in ways that the legal system really isn't intended to be used. Courts are supposed to right wrongs and give relief to people who have suffered in some way. What they aren't supposed to be is a method of punishing people for doing things that aren't illegal or aren't anything to hurt you. You just don't like them. Even if you're not guilty at all of a charge that's brought against you in criminal or civil court, and it's easy to prove your innocence, court cases are expensive and they're time-consuming. Lawyers are expensive. Being sued or charged with crimes gives people a certain impression of you, even if it's not true, and it can stay on your record if, you know, it's not cleared out the correct way. It can ruin your reputation. And this, too, was an actual written policy of the church. In the words of L. Ron Hubbard written down in one of his books, the purpose of the lawsuit is to harass and discourage rather than win. The law can be used very easily to harass, and enough harassment on somebody who is simply on the thin edge anyway, well knowing that he is not authorized, will generally be sufficient to cause professional decease. If possible, of course, ruin him utterly. So they have actually said in writing that it's a policy of the church to sue people when they know that they don't have a good case, they know they're not going to win. It's just a method of ruining someone that they see as vulnerable. Nice guy in a nice church, huh? Well, fortunately, there is a way to combat this, and that's through the tort of malicious prosecution. So buckle up, because we are about to learn all about it. So let's go over the facts first. The Allard in this case is Jean Allard, who was a member of Sea Org, which is Scientology's totalitarian sort of organization of higher-ups, uh, so named because when L. Ron Hubbard actually began it, he had a series of ships so that he could escape into international waters and away from certain laws. Jean Allard joined the church in early 1969 and eventually became a banking officer for the church in Los Angeles. But in that same year, he decided that he wanted to leave the church. Obviously, he hadn't had a very good experience. Now, as I learned reading Jenna Miskevich Hill's book, there are basically two ways to leave the church. So the first is that you can go through an official process of questioning and payments and stuff and leave according to the rules of Scientology, which can be a very difficult process, especially because you get given what's called a freeloader bill for any Scientology services or classes that you got for free while you were a member of Sea Org. But this is the method that theoretically allows you to leave the church and still be in contact with your family members and people within the church. Now, the other option that you can pursue is what's called blowing, which is basically leaving the church without permission. And that can lead to being declared a suppressive person or an enemy of the church. Uh, the church often abbreviates it as SP. And that activates the fair game policy that we talked about. At that point, church members believe that they can do anything and everything to punish you. And remember, today's case is from the 1970s under L. Ron Hubbard, who was bad and crazy, but by all accounts, the current leader, David Miscavige, is much worse and has really taken this policy to heart. So Gene Allard tried to leave the first official way, including writing to L. Ron Hubbard himself for permission and enduring threats from high-ranking officers who told him, quote, we'll deal with you in whatever way is necessary. When this wasn't working and people tried to force him to stay, Allard had finally had enough. 
So one night, he went to his office very late. He opened the safe and he took records from inside of it, which allegedly showed improper financial doings. Borrowed a car from one of his friends to get to the airport, flew directly to Kansas City, and delivered the records to an IRS office. And at that point, he completely left the church. Now, there were also several thousand Swiss francs and some traveler's checks in the safe, which Allard says he never touched, but the church claimed that he stole them. They eventually caught up with him in Florida, and he was arrested for grand theft for these Swiss francs and traveler's checks. Of course, since the church had no real evidence of Allard stealing them, the charges were eventually dropped, but he did spend 21 days in prison. In Florida. So, obviously, Allard was pretty upset, and he sued the church in civil court for malicious prosecution. Malicious prosecution is one of these torts that we talked about last week, and just like the ones we talked about last week, it has certain elements that have to be met. So, it's a common law intentional tort, and its elements include, number one, intentionally or maliciously instituting and pursuing a legal action, either civil or criminal. That is, number two, brought without probable cause, and number three, dismissed in favor of the victim of the malicious prosecution. So basically, it's exactly what we talked about with Scientology's fair game policy. Prosecuting someone with no real case, knowing that you have no case, just to hurt them. And of course, keep in mind that they do have to actually be cleared on these charges. So if there's some sort of reasonable suspicion, this is a no-go. Now, the church also countersued Allard for another tort called conversion, which is basically the civil version of theft. Remember, a criminal case is the government charging you with a crime, while a civil case is two people suing each other. So you can't go to jail on a civil charge, but there are many torts that mirror criminal charges so that people can sue for damages if the government declines to prosecute, or even if they prosecute anyway. And that's the case with things like murder and wrongful death, which mirror each other, or in this case, conversion and theft. A moment about countersuing, too. This is what happens basically when someone brings a civil case against you, and your response is, not only are they wrong, but also I have a case against them. So instead of separating it into two separate trials, they're kind of lumped together with a suit and a countersuit, and they're tried at the same time. It's a method of being efficient and keeping interrelated causes together in one case. Uh, if you'd like to know more about that, I recommend that you take a civil procedure class. Now, in the lower court on this case, Allard won on malicious prosecution and Scientology lost on conversion. So a big slap in the face to the evil empire. Not only that, the court awarded Allard a ton of money in various types of damages for his trouble. So Scientology, of course, was not satisfied with this verdict, and they appealed, and the California Court of Appeals opinion is what we're discussing today. The appeal focuses in on the malicious prosecution charge rather than conversion, so that's what they actually appealed against, so we're going to focus on that too. On appeal, Scientology raised 10 different issues with the lower court decision, some of which are kind of dull and procedural, so we'll skip those, and some of which the court just does away with really quickly. For example, Scientology claimed that Allard's lawyer acted improperly, and the court gave this about one paragraph of attention because it was so patently untrue based on the record. In fact, they described it as an exceptionally well-conducted and dispassionate trial. Scientology also straight-up lied in some of their appeals. 
For example, one of their claims on appeal is that the court refused to ask or permit voir dire questions of jurors pertaining to their religious attitudes or prejudices. Voir dire questions are the questions that the attorneys ask to jurors to screen them and decide who to select for the jury. It's a very regulated process, and there is a record kept of it. So they made this claim, and the minute that the judges in the higher court looked at the record, it became very clear that it was just completely untrue. Jurors were asked about their knowledge of Scientology, and if they knew about it, they were questioned in depth on what they knew and how they felt about it. In fact, one of the jurors, or potential jurors, was dismissed because she knew of a couple who had split up over their disagreements over Scientology. So, just a bonkers false claim that they can never have expected to win on. But this is another part of this sue-them-into-the-ground policy that the Church of Scientology has. It still takes time and money and effort to fight an obviously untrue claim, especially when it's mixed in with things that the court actually does have to think about and rule on, rather than just consult the record to see if it's true or false. So again, they're just wasting Allard's time, wasting his money. Those kinds of stupid untrue claims aren't really worth our attention, so we'll skip them. If you're interested in those, the whole decision is available online. All you have to do is Google Scientology v. Allard. I am telling you to go to the internet so many times in this episode. I promise I'm not lazy. There's just a lot going on here. But it is easy to find and it's free. So, you know, for the fifth time, feel free to Google it. So let's talk about the points on appeal that we're actually going to dig into. The first is uh, claiming some sort of bias against the religion. So they believe that the jury decided based on a bias against them rather than the actual facts. They also complained about uh, the court blocking some of the facts from the criminal case and mixed in some of the aspects of conversion. So we'll talk about how they did that. And then finally, they had a complaint against the damages that were awarded to Allard. So we've taken these 10 points, we've narrowed them down to the interesting ones. Let's talk through some of these things and how the court felt about them. First up is the issue that the Scientology practices described in the record for the lower court trial weren't properly supported by evidence and that by allowing this information in, the court prejudiced the jury against the church. Basically, they argued that by allowing their practices to be described, the trial became about arguing the validity of the religion itself rather than the actual tort of malicious prosecution. Some of the things they objected to were descriptions of e-meters, which are literally tin cans that members hold while they answer questions, and they supposedly serve as a sort of spiritual lie detector. They also described policies like the fair game policy, which we talked about, and the church's money-making schemes, implying that the church was more of a predatory scam than an actual religious organization. Now, the court did not agree that this was prejudicial. Not necessarily because this information wouldn't bias a jury, but because they said that this case basically comes down to the issue of credibility, and all of these work towards that. We all want the legally blonde moment where you realize that taking a shower would deactivate the ammonium thiglocalate, and the facts clearly prove that one side is right and one side is wrong, and we all cheer and someone goes to jail. That's usually not the case. Legal cases, especially civil cases, are balancing acts, and so sometimes facts and evidence are important not because they definitively prove the case one way or another, but because they give support to a certain issue or idea. And in this case, it's the issue of credibility. So we have two different stories, neither of which has been proved to a certainty, and neither of which is really provable to the level that you need. 
On one side, we have Allard claiming that he took only the tax information and ran and has been harassed unfairly since, while the church is claiming that Allard is a thief, and they had a legitimate case against him for theft, and they have one for conversion, even if the criminal charges were dropped. Now, our burden of proof in the civil courts is lower than the criminal courts, so it's okay that none of our evidence proves this definitively either way, but it does come down to this issue of credibility that the court finds so important. Who do we believe? Do we have a thief and a liar, or a church willing to harass people using the courts just for leaving the church? And so the methodologies of the church, especially the fair game policy, become really important here. And let's think about their written policies. Someone who leaves in what they consider an improper way is considered an enemy of the church. And enemies of the church can be harassed, sued, and have their lives destroyed. These policies add up to making Allard's story pretty credible and making it hard to believe Scientology's claims that they're just the innocent victims of an employee stealing from them. It also colors testimony for many active Scientologists because under their religion, they're encouraged to hurt enemies of the church. They might not be lying, but they're probably not as credible. So in a vacuum, this stuff might look prejudicial against the church because it is kind of crazy and it's not directly immediately related to what Allard did or what the church did. But this stuff is relevant and it's important. And as the court pointed out, a party whose reprehensible acts are the cause of harm to another and the reason for the lawsuit by the other cannot be heard to complain that its conduct is so bad that it should not be disclosed. Basically, don't make harassment part of your official policy and then say, hey, now that we're on trial for doing exactly what our policy says, it's unfair to us to talk about it. That is crazy talk. If you're walking the walk, you've got to let people talk the talk in court. Also, remember the elements we have to prove for malicious prosecution, which includes intentionality and lack of probable cause. All of these things that they talked about in the lower court case go towards proving those elements. They show that the church has a history and a policy of bringing cases without any probable cause. They show the kind of things that they said to Allard when he was leaving, claiming that they were going to come after him, um, using his readings against him. A written policy of intentional prosecution is a pretty good sign of intentionality, and and it would be insane to exclude all of these things because they are directly relevant to the tort at hand. So this is not religious-based discrimination. This is just showing the elements of the tort. Nope, shut it down. A few of Scientology's other issues on appeal seem to be kind of a backdoor way to bring up the issue of conversion, even though they lost on that issue and they weren't appealing it. Apparently, in addition to the francs that they claimed Allard stole, there were also some traveler's checks in the safe. And a few of them had actually been filled out and signed by Allard, who claims that he deposited them in Scientology accounts as a routine part of his job prior to leaving, while Scientology claimed he stole them as he left. For our younger listeners, uh, who have never seen these because they went the way of the dodo when I was in my teens, a traveler check is a check that your bank issues to you that kind of works like cash. So... It's a blank check, and then you, f- you can fill it in and give it to someone, but it doesn't have the same kind of attachment to your account as another check would, so there's not the same tracking process. I'm still a little unclear on how they work, because like I said, I think I may have bought some of them the very first time I went to Europe when I was 14, but other than that, I've never even used them. So even I am not old enough to have a great memory of Traveler's Check. 
Point being that they're untraceable enough that there was no way to really prove whether he took them or not, because although they were filled out with his information, we don't know where that money ended up. So if he's telling the truth, then they ended up back in Scientology accounts. If Scientology is telling the truth, then maybe he took them, filled them out, and gave the money to friends or deposited it in his accounts. Who knows? But these traveler's checks were a big part of why they were able to actually get him arrested originally on theft. And after he was released and those charges were dropped, they became an issue in the charge of conversion. Now, the issue that they raised on appeal is that apparently the jury was instructed to disregard any evidence relating to the traveler's checks when considering malicious prosecution. And Scientology claimed that it was prejudicial to instruct the jury to ignore the traveler's checks. Now, how they arrived at those instructions, I don't know. It's not in the appeal decision. But the court actually pointed out that it didn't really matter if the jury had considered the traveler's checks or not when it came to malicious prosecution, because they found for Allard on the issue of conversion. If they thought he'd stolen the traveler's check, they would have found him liable on conversion. That's the whole point of that counterclaim. They clearly didn't think he stole them. So how would it have helped Scientology at all for the jury to consider the checks in the claim of malicious prosecution? If anything, it hurts them, since the jury thought that he didn't steal them. They also claimed that it was prejudicial that the court didn't let them dig into why the criminal case got dismissed. But remember, our third element of malicious prosecution is that the case is dismissed in favor of the person claiming malicious prosecution. That's just sort of checking a box. There's nothing in there that makes it so that you have to dig into the why of that claim got released or why they were released from charges. And also the court noted again that this wouldn't help them if it was allowed. There was actually a hearing outside the presence of the jury to discuss this, and a big part of why that criminal case was dismissed was because the Scientology witnesses were super evasive and completely unhelpful. So in the end, they couldn't really make the charges stick. Now, if they had wanted to reveal this to the jury, they could have pushed for it in the lower court. They didn't, and so bringing it up on appeal really wasn't getting them anywhere and was sort of inappropriate and unrelated to malicious prosecution. So, so far, Scientology has failed on claiming religious bias. They have failed on trying to drag back up this supposed theft. The last thing they, they tried was a few arguments based on damages. One thing I want to pause and talk about here is called arguing in the alternative. So if you're being charged with a crime or a suit in a civil suit, you want to have every possible avenue to win, not just the single theory that your attorney thinks is the best one. So attorneys can advance competing and sometimes completely contradictory arguments, all in the same case. And then it becomes sort of a choose-your-own-adventure for the judges. They get to decide which, if any, of these theories work. So in this case, the church has raised a bunch of claims saying, hey, we're not liable for malicious prosecution because of X, Y, and Z. But in the event that you're not buying all of that and you think that we're liable for malicious prosecution, then at least we think that what you're charging us is too much in damages. So they have these different levels of argument that allow them to argue with every single thing. And this is really important because although, you know, I'm not a big fan of the Scientologists, it wouldn't seem very fair if they had to choose between arguing their innocence wrong word here because it's a civil case, but you know what I mean, or arguing for less damages. So they don't have to pick. They can argue for all of it at once. 
I think I've talked about this in other episodes, but there are a lot of different types of damages that you can award to someone in court. Typically, damages are money or some sort of restitution given to an injured party to compensate them for loss or injury. In this case, the church was ordered to pay compensatory damages and punitive damages. Compensatory damages, or actual damages, make right a very particular loss. They're usually quantifiable, and they measure something tangible. For example, all of Allard's actual costs in defending himself, uh, maybe the cost of lost wages from spending 21 days in prison, etc., 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 all of those things could go under compensatory damages. And the lower court awarded Allard $50,000 in compensatory damages, which Scientology said was too much. Now, based on what I just said, you might think this would be simple to decide since the jury is back there totaling receipts and invoices, but that's not really the way it works, because compensatory damages can also cover more nebulous things like reputation damage. There's actually not a definitive standard for how to calculate something like that. And that was part of Scientology's argument here, that the jury was instructed badly when they were told to use their reasonable judgment and reminded that they shouldn't put the defendant in a better position than they were in before. But the court found that the instructions got it right, because that's pretty much exactly what the jury should do. Use their judgment to fix what went wrong, but not give the victor a windfall. So you're not making money off compensatory damages, you're just getting put back to where you were before all of this happened to you. Now, the other type of damages that they awarded in this case were punitive damages. And these are the fun ones. These are what you probably think about when you think about the big awards that are given in legal cases on TV. And they are only awarded when the conduct was egregiously bad, and the jury believes that compensatory damages just aren't enough to right the wrong, even if they technically cover the numbers. They're supposed to be given very sparingly, and in this case, the jury gave Allard $250,000 in punitive damages to be paid by the Church of Scientology. Yikes. Now, whether this is true or not is iffy because their financials are very shady and they bury a lot of their assets, but the church claimed in the appeal that this was 40% of their net worth. So if we believe them, this was just a crazy amount of punitive damages. So they claimed, again in the alternative, that these shouldn't have been awarded at all, but even if they are, they're paying too much. So on the first point, the court, surprise, surprise, didn't buy their argument. One of the ways out of punitive damages is that although you can hold an employer responsible for the actions of his or her employee, an employer can't be made to pay punitive damages for the acts of their employees when they neither authorized nor ratified the act. So if you're an employer and your employee maliciously prosecutes someone or to make it easier, let's say they um, assault someone, they uh, perform civil assault while under the guises of their job. You can be held responsible for that, and it depends on certain facts, but that's entirely possible. But the point is, unless you told them to go assault someone, you can't be given punitive damages for what your employee did. Now, the church argued that if any harassment or malicious prosecution took place, it was the act of their employees and not something sanctioned by the church. The thing is, an employee's act doesn't have to be officially sanctioned in the way the church was implying. Just because there isn't a memo out there saying, you know, dear followers, please go sue the shit out of Allard, love your church, doesn't mean they didn't sanction it. I mean, there's this policy of fair game, 
that was put into place by the very founder of this church. It was an officially authorized policy. And the church tried to claim on appeal that the policy had been misinterpreted and, even if it ever existed, had been repealed before this case happened. But that's hard to argue when all the evidence shows that you're still applying this policy. And interestingly, they didn't even present any evidence in the lower court to try and prove the policy was repealed. They just kind of set it in their appeal and assumed that the higher court would believe them. If they had any evidence that this wasn't an official Scientology policy, they should have brought it up in the lower court. Also, everyone who was involved in intimidating Allard and was involved in his decision to leave was higher-level management of the church. And that's very different than the acts of a lower-level employee, because executives can reasonably be assumed to be acting on behalf of their employer. So something done by a CEO is much more likely to be seen as sanctioned by that company than something that the janitor does. It's just assumed that people at that level, if they're acting in their capacity of their job, it's probably sanctioned because they're the person making those choices. Now, the church also argued that the amount of punitive damages was too high, and finally the court agreed with them on something. $250,000 is a lot of punitive damages, especially compared to the smaller $50,000 compensatory damages award. The court did make the point, again, that any party whose tenants include lying and cheating in order to attack its enemies deserves the results of the risk that, that entails. But their point was that they didn't deserve $250,000 worth. Because we also have to take into account that this is a pretty repulsive organization outside of their acts towards Allard. Nowadays, we know a lot about them, and so this is pretty common knowledge. But at the time, they weren't as well known, and many members of the jury were probably learning about their practices for the first time. So imagine learning all the stuff that we know now about Scientology as you're deciding how much money they owe someone that they've targeted. The court felt that the huge amount of punitive damages wasn't based on Allard himself and what he had struggled with, but based on the jury just plain not liking the church and wanting to punish them. Now, I feel like that's a pretty good impulse, but it's not supposed to control our courts and our juries. So they reduced the punitive damages to 50000 which they felt was a more reasonable number and what you would give outside this particular want to hurt and punish the Church of Scientology. So together with the compensatory damages, at the end of this appeal, the church owed Allard a total of $100,000. They probably weren't too happy with that, but they did save $150,000 off of what they were originally ordered to pay. So I guess that's sort of a win for them. But on all nine of their other claims, we finally got to watch a court stick it to the bad guys. That's fun. I wish I could say that these cases are more frequent and that more people have fought back against Scientology's habits of using the court to harass and bankrupt people, but there really aren't a ton of them. It seems that most people who are being targeted by the church take one of two methods. The first is that they try the best they can to just kind of stay afloat and stay under the radar, hoping it'll pass over, or they try the Church of Scientology in the court of public opinion. So Jenna Miscavige, for example, in her book described how after she left, she gave an interview to, I think, Nightline. And before it aired, she was stalked by the church as they tried to get her to pull the interview. They followed her car everywhere. They disparaged her to her in-laws and tried to get them to disconnect from her and her husband if it aired. They basically threatened to ruin her life over it. 
In terms of legal remedies, especially in tort, she could have pursued a lot. I mean, assault, intentional infliction of emotional distress, invasion of privacy, alienation of affection, trespass, even maybe false imprisonment for some of the times they were following her. So she had a lot of options there. But the method that she chose was different. She let the interview go ahead. She began the website exscientologykids.org, and she wrote this memoir and essentially became a very public face of the anti-Scientology movement. And there is a lot of power in choosing this sort of non-legal remedy, where instead of engaging with this battle they're trying to pull you into in the courts, you shine a light on their underhanded activities, and you just kind of hope that all the scrutiny on them will lead them to leaving you alone, because in the end, you're not worth all the backlash. Of course, this doesn't help you if they're bringing fake charges against you and getting you arrested like Allard, or repeatedly suing you like many people that they've gone after, or calling in fake bomb threats in your name like Paulette Cooper. In that case, I'd recommend what I always recommend, hire a lawyer. That's it for this week, guys, and that is it for our cult series. I'll be back on our regularly scheduled Wednesday this coming week, provided my computer does not have another meltdown. In the meantime, I would really like to do a listener questions episode coming up. So please send me your questions at tortsillustratedpodcast at gmail.com. Again, I will not give you legal advice, but I'll try my best to answer all your weird legal questions that just pop into your mind. Until next week, this has been Torts Illustrated. I'm your host, Marie, asking that when you kill all the lawyers, please spare me. And Scientologists, please leave my computer alone. Mm-hmm.